0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Clear to Close. I'm your host, Alan Paris, joined by the Ferris and Sloan to my Cameron, Mr. Anthony Iani, and Brian Traeger.
1: That's a good one, dude. I was, wow.
0: pretty, I was pretty pleased with that one. I was pretty pleased with that
1: one. I mean, NHL playoffs are coming around the corner, yeah. so I don't know if you're a big Detroit Red Wings fan like Cameron, yeah. but... It, I was trying to think on that
0: one. I usually try to take the least impressive of the trio as myself. Um, I don't know if you've noticed that trend. I always try to give you guys the more impactful, memorable uh, members of the trio. And that almost
1: kind of hard.
0: Like they're all great. They're all great. Like it's a, it's a pretty well distributed distributed group.
1: Yeah, I mean Cameron's my favorite out of Cameron's all.
0: my favorite, but he's the least maybe exciting in real life. So <laughs> so uh yeah so I so I hope you guys found uh found that equal in my opinion of of the trio but uh it was hard it was a hard one today.
2: I think it was good. I think you I think you have to though, take you got to take what you take, right? So if yeah. if you, yeah. you got to give yourself the best, then you got to go for it. Alan, you yeah. are the host, right?
0: Uh yeah, I I guess. I mean, I guess I guess I guess, <laughs> I guess I'll be the host today. Well. Um,
2: Someone needs
0: it. speaking right. of Cameron, speaking of Cameron, uh, have you guys seen Succession on HBO?
1: I thought you were gonna say Avatar 2, but no, I haven't seen Succession.
0: Okay. I have uh, I have not. My wife and I were looking for a new show to watch on HBO, um, and we came across Succession, which is basically like this story of imagine like a media mogul and owns uh, big media conglomerate and is his, his kids are waiting to take over the company because he's starting to lose it a little bit and but he has so much control he doesn't want to actually let go of the company so he seems like an awful person but but i digress <laughs> but cameron the actor who i actually don't know the actor's name but whoever played cameron and ferris bueller is one of his sons in the show and i kind of got excited when i saw him and i learned that my wife takes no memory of ferris bueller's day off which with and it's it's one of my favorite movies so you have to watch that then really I think we have to. Yeah, I think we have to. I think she's seen it. It just never made a a big impression uh, to her. Oh, my God. Even after uh, 10 plus years together, learn something new about my wife. I love you, Alex, but we got to get you on Ferris Bueller.
2: Absolutely. You know what? Put her on the pod. We need to lecture her about this.
0: That's right. That's right. We could. Next episode. (laughs) Um, I'm sure she would love that. Yeah. Uh, Anything
2: else? I'm watching. We're watching a bunch of stuff, but... um, the final season of Mrs. Maisel's getting ready to hit, which is, I, I, I love that. I never got into that show. I just love I think it's a pretty writing. polarizing show. It is. The writing is amazing, though, especially yeah. last season. But we've been watching Shrinking and uh, Harrison
1: I have no Floyd's idea what it. you guys are talking about. Yeah, Harrison <laughs> Funny.
2: Janet <laughs> keeps pointing to me and going, you're a curmudgeon like he is.
0: <laughs> so, we the 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 last show that we've been on, which is just phenomenally done, is White Lotus. Like, oh yeah, we were late. We were late to White Lotus, and we just finished up season two. Uh, yeah. But talk about a, a series that is—it's just, just so well done. Like, there's nothing over dramatic about it. It's just perfectly executed. Uh, I heard that season one was mad. Season and two I, is better than season, season one. Yeah. It, it, I would however, say that, however, yeah. I d- I would not say that season one is mad. I I would say season two outdid season one, but I thought
1: I might have to give it it a shot because I can't go into a show knowing that I have to spend hours in a no 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 just to get to season two, which is awesome.
0: No, I I think I I mean AI. Let me know what you think, but I think season one is incredibly enjoyable to watch.
1: I thought
2: I thought it was really good. Like the setting was great, the actors are great. And then when they moved to season two, of course, it's Sicily. So that's you know yeah. that's the motherland, uh, yeah. right? And so, and AI hey, is thinking about the sauce. The oh sauce. man, I'm looking for grapevines. I'm looking for grapes. I'm looking for food, right?
0: <laughs> so <laughs> it, it is it is funny. While we were watching, it, so agree with you that the scenery is unbelievable in, oh, yeah. in, in that episode <laughs> or in that in that series. And uh, and we were planning. A, we're we're currently trying to plan a trip to go to Europe for a little while. And and originally we were thinking of spending the majority of time in kind of the in Scotland area, uh, spending some time in the Scottish Highlands and everything. And mm-hmm. however, as we were watching that, we're like but maybe we should pop down for some time on, on the Mediterranean yeah. and spend some time <laughs> in the sunshine. So yeah, uh, never know. AI, let me see. know if some family members you have better. Right. Hopefully right. they would well, welcome you better. Hopefully they would welcome you better than they welcomed uh, some of the characters when they try to meet their family members in, in- Tell me about it. They would be nice.
2: Yeah, They would definitely be nice. Yep. You have to admit though, in that F. Murray Abraham, in my opinion kind of stole that whole show he's oh, just yeah. amazing in that zone i love him Fantastic. Too. he's awesome
0: yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> anyway we digress uh, yes
2: i can talk about well, books music and movies all the time
0: welcome everybody to a new episode of clear to close if you're new to clear to close we're excited to have you here today if you're a returning listener welcome back um, after this episode, uh, shoot us a review. We'd love to hear what you thought about the episode. Exciting episode today. We've got mm-hmm. uh, a guest. you know, we we jump back a little bit between having guests on the show as well as us uh, Trio having our own discussions around the market and what's happening in the industry. Exciting guest today, um, we've got uh, Laura Arce, who is a SVP at unidos u s. Uh, Unidos US is a nonprofit dedicated to building uh, a positive economic trajectory for Latinos uh, through homeownership. Um, she previously has held roles in public policy and housing policy at Wells Fargo, as well as a, a senior policy analyst for the FHFA. And so, wanted to have her on as we discuss the opportunity of the size of the Latino home buying market. What we saw as an opportunity is one is you know understand the past of kind of what's been the case today and limiting home ownership for for that group, but then also as we kind of look in the market today of a need of more loan volume and, and where the market's going in the future, thought it'd be great to have an expert show how that market's different than um, uh, maybe the average uh, home buyer that that our lenders work with. Um, and see how it can be a, a business opportunity as well as a, a community opportunity to really expand homeownership across the country. So, AI, Brian, any any thoughts from, from the talk we had with
2: Laura? Yeah, I thought she had a lot of really great ideas you know, She she's really thoughtful, really mindful about how to approach this and how lenders and she threw out some factoids, which I think brian you you probably agree right because we were we were kind of hand motioning back and forth going oh my god right so i think as an originator or lender out there i think i think she had a lot of really great calls to action and there's definitely some things to think about as you go through and listen to that so definitely thought it was a great episode.
1: i agree yeah i think a lot of people will get a lot out of it she's really smart Mm-hmm thoughtful. And I had a ton of fun in this episode too. So looking forward to to seeing people's reactions and and how they thought it was too, but I'm sure it's going to be fantastic.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, before we jump in, uh, we need to give thanks to uh, our beloved employer and sponsor that makes all this happen, Maxwell. Maxwell's mortgage optimization platform provides America's local lenders forward-looking technology and solutions for the entire mortgage origination process from intake of application to the secondary market. Um, lenders on Maxwell close loans over 13 days faster and enable their loan officers to close over 15% more loans per month. To learn more about Maxwell in any of our technology-powered solutions, visit us at www.highmaxwell.com or email us at meetmax@highmaxwell.com. At Are well, you guys ready to jump in the episode? Yeah, yes, sir. Right. All right. Without further ado, Miss Laura Arce. Well, Laura, uh, super excited to have you join us today, and welcome to welcome to Clear to Close this afternoon. Great.
3: Well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you
0: all. You know, Laura, maybe to start. Uh, would love to hear a little bit about your background. You know, uh, you currently work and represent uh, Unidos US. I'd love to hear about you, kind of your your career, and then and, and what Unidos US is doing. Um, and then we'll kind of jump into the to the meat of the discussion.
3: Yeah, so um, Unitas U.S. is the country's largest Hispanic civil rights organization. We've been around for about 55 years. The work that we do cuts across policy, advocacy, program work, um, communications, and outreach. And we cover a broad range of issues that matter to Latinos, but in most of the cases to all Americans, of issues such as um, health, civic engagement, Um, workforce development, education, and also housing. So we have worked in the housing space, particularly um, efforts to advance Latino homeownership for over 25 years. We're one of the largest um, hud certified housing counseling intermediaries. We have a network of about 50 organizations across the country that provide pre-purchase housing counseling to their communities. We also have a CDFI, a community development financial institution, which is a type of entity that can invest and bring capital to local communities. And in our case, we invest in our affiliates to develop affordable housing, community facilities, and so on. And so we've been in the space for, for a long time. I uh, rejoined Unidos US last year in, in 2022 to help um, develop, launch, and lead a new initiative. To, to take our homeownership work to another level and really build on our long legacy of seeking to, to close the homeownership gap for the Latino community. I um I actually started my career at Unidos about 25 years ago. Back then, our organization was called the National Council of La Raza, but I began my career there working on fair housing issues and public policy around community development. And then I based my career in Washington, D.C., where I'm currently located. So I've done what I call the the D.C. circuit. I've worked on Capitol Hill. I've worked for a financial regulator, specifically the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which is the regulator of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And um, I also spent time at Wells Fargo um, working on housing and consumer finance matters from a more private sector perspective. And now I'm back at Unidos, hoping to be able to bring the knowledge and expertise that I've you know, gathered across all those different experiences, to um, hopefully do some good work to close the homeownership gap.
0: Well, we're super excited to have you. Uh, obviously, a very impressive background. And you know, at, at Maxwell, we were our uh, vision is ultimately to turn the tide of of homeownership. And you know, and as we started doing a little bit of research, we we're looking for an expert to to speak about where where there are opportunities and where there are challenges today in and in, in specifically in the Hispanic homeownership um, sector. And so obviously we are lucky to get uh, introduced to you and excited to uh, to have you on today.
3: Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk about all of these topics.
1: a awesome. fantastic background. I think from my experience, I come from a mortgage origination background and working for direct mortgage lenders and, and such. And the whole DC style, life, everything is so foreign to a lot of, uh, you know, loan originators out there. And so you hear and you read in the news and all of these things about what goes on over there. Only after the fact that things are done, do you really start to realize it a little bit? So I'm super interested to get to know you a bit more and understand that world. Because again, it is so foreign to me. Yeah. And you
2: make a good point about the the originators, Brian, because- you know, maybe, Laura, you can kind of touch on this, too, because you mentioned, you know, you mentioned there's some educational things that you do to advance home ownership, especially in the Latino community, but even the originators. Right. There's sometimes in my experience, there's a there's a misconception out there that these loans are harder and that's not really true. Right. And so maybe that's maybe you can touch on that a little bit, too, just because to, I'm interested in the educational piece, because that's real big.
3: Thank you for that question. That That's a really fundamental foundational element that we, we have to address. Certainly mm-hmm. when I think about education, it's around mortgage readiness because the last thing we want to do is for someone to get into a loan that's not right for them You know, at that time. And so we want to make sure that they fully understand um, the process and what it takes to be a successful homeowner financially to be set up for success from day one. I think, too, particularly in the Latino community where the home ownership rate is lower, and so we don't necessarily have the generational history of home there's sort of this more foundational awareness piece that almost has to come before the education. Mm-hmm. So having people understand, you know, that home can be for them, and then there's the education, here's what it takes, you know, and what you need to do to prepare yourself to be successful. But then, of course, on, on the flip side of that, there's education about the market itself. So there's, you know, the education of Latino consumers and then the education of the industry to better understand the market to right. what the needs and the obstacles are. The and education, opportunities.
1: it really is in all phases of life. Like there's, I mean, we could learn about financial mm-hmm. literacy throughout our entire life. I know a lot of good habits are started when we're really young. If you have a family who has a, a good history of saving, for example, or things like that, where you could learn from your family And a lot of families have, like you said, have that generational wealth built up from their parents and their grandparents who have always owned homes. When you talk about financial literacy and educating, are you tackling it in different cohorts of age groups? Because of course, like when you're trying to teach a child to save their their quarter every every month or however often it is, a loan officer won't care about that because they're not going to get a loan for, for ages. But there are people that can and are credit worthy that could get loans and mortgages now. So how do you guys think about education through different cohorts of age?
3: Yeah, it's a great point. And I'll say that, I mean, you know, that thing of community, that's where I focus most of my work, So That's sort of the, the, what I'm most familiar with. But, there's within what we would call the Latino segment or Hispanic home ownership segment or buying segment, there's a lot of diversity. And so certainly on the, the age cohort is a really big one. We're buying onto a pretty young population, but there's also what, what I call generational. So whether you're a first generation, recent immigrant, or someone whose family has been in this country for multiple generations, you know, in some cases, you know, parts of the Southwest, you have families who have been there since before it was the United States. And there's a lot of differences around there. And I think, you know, part of it is, you know, understanding where we come from and it's just different. And so it's not that it's all good or bad. I think about the example of my grandfather who didn't believe in credit and he paid all of his bills in cash and he manages his money very closely. And on the surface, those are actually really great money habits, but in, this, in, in the United States, it's the way our financial system is structured. He would have been credit invisible. He, he was the most responsible person with money I ever knew, but he probably wouldn't have been able to get a mortgage. And so part of it is it's not necessarily it's sort of recognizing what are the good traits, um, but how do those work in a responsible way in the system that we have? And how can you be successful financially? Here Within that system country. too,
1: then, you know, taking that, that cash... Entrusting into an organization or an institution to hold that for you is a big step. So, how do you how do you trust that? And I think a lot of times we hear word of mouth: who who around our community knows somebody who's in one of those institutions who we can work with or something like that. So, how do you how do you instill trust into these folks that again are very responsible, have the cash, but might need to. Put their first foot into these institutions to allow for themselves to play a part of that game, if you will, of of, on the path of home ownership.
3: Yeah, so I I think the issue of trust in the financial system is such a big issue, and I I think about it in a couple of ways. Because certainly, you know, it's one thing we're talking about someone looking to buy a house. We hope that. Far in advance of that, they've already had a bank account and sort of, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's it's a journey, it's a set of steps, right? But when you think about the the very kind of basics on entering the financial mainstream and, and getting a bank account, for example, you know, one of the top reasons over and over when you know the FDIC every two years does their report. And for those who are unbanked, particularly in communities of color, one of the top reasons is trust and thinking about again, the Latino community specifically. There's one, I, I could imagine a, a set of folks who maybe are more recent immigrants and they come from countries where there isn't a stable banking system. And so they come with that kind of ingrained, that, that mistrust ingrained in them. For other communities, particularly those who maybe have been here a bit longer, there could have been trust lost. And I think, you know, an example that's often given is during the foreclosure crisis, where it was proven that, you know, a lot of Black and brown communities and individuals were more likely than others to be put into predatory loan products. And you know the foreclosure crisis hit black and Latino communities really hard um, in terms of loss of wealth. And financially, it's hard to recover from that, but emotionally, it's really hard to recover mm-hmm. from that. You know, a lot of people feel burned. and then you have individuals who are now entering the prime home buying years and they saw their parents go through a foreclosure, and it's it's hard to lose that, you know, to so, so there's a lot of elements of the building, the trust, but to part of your question around like, who do you go to? I know the work we've doing over and over, the top folks that Latinos go to, who they trust for advice, it's first their family, second, people who they know personally who have successfully bought a house, and then the third is friends. And so, and then other, you know, kind of in, underst- mm-hmm. realtors, other people kind of are lower on, I mean, they're there, but they're lower on the list. And so thinking about... How those trusted advisors is that inner circle, and particularly the one I'm interested in is the people you know who have bought a house and gone through it. You can trust them to kind of tell you the truth of how it really went. So I think there's something there to be able to connect
1: people. That's fascinating. Yeah, one of my one of my very best friends of all time, his family immigrated to the United States from <laughs> India, and they built their community off of specializing in certain areas for their community to succeed in the American lifestyle. And the one that his parents chose was real estate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, like they're the real estate agents. They do the mortgages too and stuff. And it, it was really powerful to understand from learning from him and his family on how their community really prospered into Iowa, where we grew up, and leaning on each other as a network of folks to trust. And that got everybody kind of, okay, one step in that was really good. Let's keep going, and then that person develops their career, and they, it just it was it's really a, a powerful story to to learn about how communities are developed and how uh, specifically from him. Shout out AJ, who's living in Costa Rica right now for the month. Um, <laughs> jealous, but yeah, I just wanted to share that because I got I was fortunate enough to learn firsthand from him and how they lean on their community and their family mm-hmm. so hard in various areas of that community. Mm-hmm.
0: Laura, would love to hear your experience. You know, I think you're 100% right where the family, your community is the kind of trust network of how you go make your financial decisions, how you should approach your financial life. What was your experience in your early years in in helping establish your your view of homeownership and financial uh, approach?
3: Yeah. So, you know, I had a long time interest and passion on closing the wealth gap and homeownership specifically because of my own personal experience and what I've seen kind of play out in, in my own family. So I'm technically I'm first generation, the first in, in my family to be born in the U.S. Um, my grandparents came to the U.S. Um, separately, although two sets in the early 1950s when each of my parents were really young, while they weren't born in the U.S., they, they grew up here. And so they were very Americanized and they were two things that they did together. looking back on my life, I see is what transformed the trajectory of my own life. These two choices they made, one was getting a college education. And the second was buying a house when they were newlyweds and still pretty young. At the time when they sought to buy a house, they were graduate students. They weren't making a lot of money, so they didn't have a very high income. They wanted to buy in the neighborhood where my grandparents lived because they wanted babysitters nearby or someone who could help with childcare. And this is a neighborhood that was historically a redlined community. So it wasn't a place where a lot of banks were looking to do loans. It was um, a foreclosed property that was boarded up and had been abandoned. So from a collateral risk perspective, it wasn't something that was very appealing to a lot of lenders. So they struggled to find a way to purchase the house. They ultimately ended up buying it with, with the one type of loan they could get, which was a student loan. And so, you know, looking back, it's not something I would advise anyone else <laughs> to do in terms of the way that, you know, it seemed like they were kind of did it all wrong, but ultimately it was one of the best decisions they ever made. They, they moved in, they were able with help from family and friends to fix up the house, they lived there, you know, we lived there for a number of years when I was really young as a baby and a young toddler. And then they were ultimately able to sell the house for a profit and and move to a larger house in a, in a nicer neighborhood, better schools. And that really set our path for for them, but also for our family, but specifically for me to kind of build on the knowledge and the opportunities of homeownership. Um, So I I see how it played out. And it wasn't just me, similar stories with my cousins and Mm -hmm. friends I grew up with in Oakland, California have similar stories. And so I see how it has worked and, you know, I wanted to work for more families.
0: That's great. And I can see the it's not, it's not obviously impact. I mean, it's obviously impacted your career and what you're focused on. Like, it's it's become a passion. Like, I you, you look at your whole career, it looks on, on what you're focused on. It's it's um it seems like it's it's stayed true to your to your being and your soul of of what impact you want to make.
3: Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think you know. Again, I, I mentioned that I, I grew up in Oakland, California, and there's a bus line, the 57 bus, that cuts across Oakland, and it starts at least from me in East Oakland, where I grew up. And it cuts across to from kind of a little rougher parts of Oakland to working class parts of Oakland to the really nice parts of Oakland. And for me, like riding that bus, you know, almost every day, it just reinforced how where you live dictates so much in terms of what you have access to schools, amenities, safety and so, like, just linking all those things together is, you know, another piece of just what sort of drove drove it home for me, and and you know, the, the home ownership being so important, not just financially, but from so many other
2: perspectives. You know, you make a great point about, and by the way, we we first generation folks have to stick together, so because I am too. Yes, <laughs> um, but you know, the, your points phenomenal about how owning a home set your family on a on a wealth building trajectory, right? But it's still, it's still, you know, home ownership is, is certainly a driver of wealth today, but there are all these additional challenges. So how, and you guys are doing good work on that, but what do you think is the biggest blocker to, and there's probably a lot, right? But what do you yeah. think is some of the biggest? Yeah, no,
3: there, there are a lot, and we are trying to do a lot of work, but we certainly can't do it alone. And it's like, you know, I love kind of with you guys, you know, at Maxwell and other folks in like the fintech space or industries that we just need to think more creatively. If I, if, if I needed to pick just one, I think right now it's, it's the supply and specifically the affordable starter home and inventory of affordable starter homes. If I, if I just kind of had one magic wand to wave, there are a lot of other elements that I think are very, very important, but in today's market, that to me, seems to be the biggest obstacle. I mean, you know, Freddie Mac has their report, they're Today, 8.3 million mortgage-ready Latinos out there, you know, that would go a long way in narrowing the ownership gap. We could probably close it by half if all of those mortgage-ready Latinos were able to buy a house today. But, you know, many of them live in really high-cost markets where they might be mortgage-ready, but there's nothing affordable for them. So that's, I would say, that's the biggest issue at the
2: moment. And and you're right. We talk about this a lot on this podcast, probably every episode, but how hard hard it is. There's certainly probably builders out there that are that want to build those homes or convert those homes, but some of the local restrictions make it really difficult for new. So are you are you working with like municipalities and counties and different MSAs to try and loosen some of those regulations or at least make it easier?
3: Yeah. So I think I think there are a few points. Certainly the regulations and the zoning and some of those matters that either restrict or just make it more expensive or take mm-hmm. longer to build houses is a big mm-hmm. issue. We, you know, we're based in, in Washington, D.C. Um, we do have a presence in some states, but most of that type of work is we do through our community-based affiliates. So in certain markets, many of them are very active and engaged in promoting policies that, that could expand the development and building of affordable housing. But I think we need to start thinking also just kind of more, more creatively beyond that in terms of the type of housing, the density is a really big you know, issue being able to do higher density housing. You know, in California, there's, you know, big movement around accessory dwelling units, which I think is another, you know, really great thing, especially in a high cost state like California. And then, you know, in more kind of rural suburban areas, thinking about even alternative types of like just how can we build good quality homes less, you know, I don't want to say cheaply, but, you know, mm-hmm. so it's not so expensive and looking at different types of building materials, even modular housing. Uh, manufactured housing, looking even at, you know, shared equity. Historically, I've not been a big fan of shared equity models, but, you know, and again, in some places where the affordability gap is so huge and inventory supply is so Mm. tight, I think we just need to be really creative, open-minded about how we think about what homeownership looks like.
1: That's a great point because like, if you just think linearly on this stuff, I don't think much will change. I mean, the incentives for builders and for these capitalists always aim towards different demographics because their return gets higher when you're leveraged higher and you're making more income. And so the incentives are crazy. So I love seeing subsidies and, and things like that. But what is very important with what you said is thinking creatively and thinking differently than the norm in order to solve some of these things. I think some similar can be said in terms of incentives on loan officer compensation, just like the builders who are making or the developers and the builders who are creating these homes Loan officers act based on incentives too, and with the current rules in place where they make a set basis point commission, which is a function of the loan volume, so the more or the higher the loan is, the more compensation they get. so they're naturally incentivized to go after the higher income people who get higher loans. So then it realizes, okay, well, if those folks are naturally being waived into that area, well, then what loan officers are focusing on this area because they are they might be putting in the same amount of effort for a different amount of compensation. There's a problem there. Mm-hmm. And then maybe it's new loan officers or ones who just... I mean, there's a lot of reasons or, or, or possibilities of who those loan officers are, but the better ones tend to migrate towards that compensation incentive. And so I think something needs to change with the LO comp as well, once you get more directly into the mortgage piece. But I did think it's very similar to how developers and builders are incentivized in the buildings that they choose or the areas that they choose to do.
3: Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great point, Brian. I think, you know, I mean, certainly I, I think you're right that the way, I mean, we, we have systems, right? And, and they, they steer, folks to one direction or the other, and certainly the way our loan officers are compensated, most of them are, it's they're either pushed toward the higher value mortgages and or the more kind of cookie cutter that they know they can process, you know, very quickly and kind of get the volume. And I think, you know, thinking about in the Latino community and a lot of low and moderate income communities, like, you know, we were talking about the lack of affordable housing it's interesting, there are a lot of parts of this country where there is affordable housing, where you can actually get a house for under 100000 certainly mm-hmm. under 50000 You know, some of these communities, uh, maybe there's some rehab that needs to happen, can, particularly like the East, you know, Eastern, Northeast, and in Mid-Atlantic parts of the country. But it's really hard to get a mortgage for, you know, for sure under $50,000, or under $100,000. So that, that kind of leaves out a big chunk of the market, and then to the cookie-cutter point, you know, a lot of, you know, Latinos have a very high self-employment entrepreneurship rate. And as we know, if you're self-employed, it's more complicated to get approved. And so I think the way the incentives are structured, I don't fault a loan officer who's trying to put food on the table for, you know, kind of going toward one market or another. But I do think we need to look at how we're setting up these incentives and what
2: what the impacts are on the market and who's being left out. For you, loan officers listening, eight and a half million eligible Latinos out there that can hopefully <laughs> purchase a home. It's time to get to work. Exactly, they call it work for a reason. So that's kind of my opinion,
0: right, <laughs> Laura? Laura, I know, I know, you know, and this is a good segue into some of your other points that can make an impact. But let's keep focused on this one for for the time being. This was the one that could make the biggest difference. But even inside of it, there's this complex web of zoning regulation, you know, builder motivation. Loan officer compensation. I think it's to even to me, it feels a bit like almost impossible to get everyone together to align on what's going to make an impact. Which of those is going to make the biggest impact? And then how can how can someone focus on where they're thinking about how they can help in that? If they, if this is something they believe in that they can help in in making a difference there.
3: Yeah, gosh, that's that's a that's a really tough question. Um it's a complicated problem, right? And it's not one that happened overnight. And so the mm-hmm. solutions are probably going to be complicated and multifaceted, and they're going to take time and a lot of effort and working and people needing to kind of work together and maybe identify some partnerships that weren't historically there. I mean, mm-hmm. we're certainly looking at that of partnering with folks who maybe we haven't historically worked with to, to advance a common goal. But I think if I again if you if you force me to pick one, I, I would I would probably go to the local. Cause at the end of the day, that's that's where a house is, that's where it's built. And and maybe finding, I mean, it gets complicated because of all the differences in jurisdictions and even across states. And so thinking about whether it's a toolkit or some best practices that could be replicated and elevating the some of the places where there has been some work done and some changes um, that actually have impacted. Cause sometimes it's one thing to make a policy change at the state level or the local level which is really hard to do almost mm-hmm. anywhere yeah. um but even then that doesn't necessarily it doesn't always translate to a change on the ground or it still kind of takes time and so making sure that those connections are hit there and that the, the intended impact is happening um so I guess that's what I point to but it's it's not it's not a one single approach, yeah. but I think the local is, is a really key.
0: Yeah. Cause I got, I got to think that's gotta, cause I think mean, to your point earlier, there are areas where it's affordable today, mm-hmm. obviously you have to weigh out yeah. what the, what the average income is in those areas too. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but the, because housing is so unique by market um, mm-hmm. in the history of those housing of even past red line areas, past zoning laws, et cetera, it seems like it's gotta be the state local level that, Solves maybe, or maybe has a, a quicker impact to solving that community's discrepancy or issue mm-hmm. in in affordable housing. But yeah that, yeah, that that that'd be my guess. But it, it yeah. uh, obviously there's it seems like there's a ton of of impact in the federal level too. But but oh, yeah. um, maybe the slightly quicker results is is in the state and local level.
3: Yeah, and one one idea that we're pursuing, you know, we're preparing to launch kind of this this broad initiative, and one element of it is looking at local markets and selecting, you know, a small number, like, you know, mm-hmm. five or so in local markets and, and really study the market maybe test some approaches and have that shape, like a set of typologies almost, but yeah. then maybe in future, you know, see what works, what doesn't work and then assess them and see, okay, what are the markets similar to this in terms of like the type of housing stock, the population, the income, home values, different things. Right. And then, maybe something similar could work elsewhere and just, you know, you have to start somewhere and you can't boil the ocean, as they say.
1: (laughs) I think that's a really smart approach. And to maybe clarify a little bit more about what Unidus USA does, as well as the FHFA, maybe, and other DC organizations is like, it sounds like, is there almost like a think tank mentality where you have a group of folks who says, hey, we're just going to for three months or for a year, I don't know think about how we can make a difference. And then you go and test those hypotheses out in the markets, as you just mentioned, and then be able to kind of replicate it. Is that what, what your group does? Is that what a lot of these groups in DC do is, is think about these things at a macro like national level and start mm-hmm. to hypothesize and, and deliver in small communities to then build upon that?
3: So the short answer is yes. Um, I think though, historically, one of the challenges, a couple of the challenges have been around that longer term view and the way, you know, we're either always reacting to emergencies or we're, you know, responding to opportunities, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And sometimes it's hard to think longer term, but but that was specifically why I, I was brought on back to Unidos, US was to think help us think more long term. And you know, the initiative that we'll be launching later this year is going to be a multi-year initiative, thinking long-term and thinking about what are the things we need to be doing today and what are the seeds we need to start planting that we may not reap for like three, five or more years, but we need to start working on. And that that cuts across whether it's on the mortgage lending side, on the inventory development side, on the more consumer education awareness piece, um, and, and kind of thinking very broadly and, and part of that also includes a research component. We've been working really closely with the Urban Institute on um, building a research agenda on specific on Latino homeownership to to identify at least what are the questions that we need answers to to best understand what are the challenges, what are the opportunities for Latino home buyers, and how can that help inform really good public policy and market practices to at the end of the day, narrow and ultimately close that homeownership gap.
0: Laura I want to talk about credit what's the role that our credit system and credit underwriting and, and mortgages done today impacts this community is that is that a key piece of solving this challenge too or is that is that in a in a in a good state
3: no no it's another there's there are many many issues we need to <laughs> to address and certainly the the credit piece you know access to what i would call both responsive and responsible mortgage credit it's You know, big picture, we know that Latinos have higher um, denial rates for mortgage loans, and you know there are multiple reasons for that. But I think thinking, kind of taking a step back, you know, I I do think this country is overdue for modernizing how we approach or assess credit risk, and thinking about what are the elements. And I just think the market today is so different. I mean, in many ways, we have very similar criteria that we did, you know, 20, 30 plus years ago, and our our economy has changed so much. And we think more and more, you know, people don't tend to stay at the same job for 10 years. So like, you know, job, the, the definition of job stability is very different. People piece together through different types of jobs together, whether it's gig economy or elsewhere, or a side hustle with, you know, a side business that they hope to someday become, you know, um, a business, so thinking about, you know, what, what is the consumer of today and tomorrow, and are we accurately assessing them as whether or not good credit risk? Um, so I think there's a lot of work that could be done in that space.
2: And, you know, the word I keyed in on there when, when and that's a great point, Laura, but you, you said the word modernizing. So, you know, the, the business has evolved, right? Mm-hmm. How can tech, Maxwell's a tech firm, how can technology help this process, in your opinion?
3: Yeah, no, I I think I think technology has a, a really important role. I mean, like anything, when 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 something's new and things are evolving and changing, there's always the the cautionary tales as well as the the tales of opportunity. But I really hope. I mean, again, I, I mentioned earlier that Latino population is really young, and so I do think there's a change in terms of people's comfort levels with using technology in the mortgage process. I think in today's environment, there's still a lot of preference for face-to-face, you know, or at least some element of, you know, in-person direct communication. But I think that's going to change as, you know, the younger cohort ages into their, their prime home buying years. But just having better information and being able to level the playing field a bit, like whether it's, you know, I mean, the property valuations is, is a really great example. We have a very old school system it has been in place for a very long time. And in, you know, recent years, it's become clear that that individual personal bias has interjected itself and it's caused a lot of problems and it's a lot of disparities in, you know, the values of homes and different types of communities. And, you know, I think they're looking at what's a different approach to home valuations that it takes out that individual bias. And so I think that's one example, but I think there are a lot of ways we could think about that in terms of, you know, whether it's underwriting, help through the process or the property
2: itself. It's a shame in this day and age, 2023, that we're still talking about bias because we were talking about bias when I first got into business in late 80s and it remains and I saw something on marketplace yesterday without getting into the gory details about it, but it, it continues. And, you know, as I would call it, it's a drag. So.
3: Yeah. You know. Well, I think, I mean, a, a prime example in that history is is our credit scores. I think that was the mm-hmm. promise of credit scores in the early days of like, Oh, we're just going to have this number and you know, it's going to be, you know, just, yeah, it's not going to be about individuals personal traits. Um, and we've, again, it's taken us some time, but I think now it's pretty well understood how you can you know, embed bias in a lot of these algorithms and systems. And so that's where I kind of note that it's that, you know, there's certainly promise. And I think, I mean, this is the future, right? So and, and I'm all for it. So I think, you know, we need to look at how to build it, but build it responsibly so that we're not embedding bias in places where the, the promise is really that we're eliminating it. Yep.
0: Laura, opinions on, I think, you know, I think it was back in October, the FHFA kind of approved Fannie and Freddie for a new FICO score of, I think it's like the FICO 10T and the Vantage 4.0 or something like that, which took, I think, a new approach took rent, utilities, telecom payments, stuff like that, a little more into consideration. What was obscure about that release. I think it seems like it's that's moving in the right direction and kind of a, a better way to to value someone's credit worthiness. What was unsure of that is like what actually impact it makes. Like what does it open up from a market opportunity yeah, okay. that that obviously wasn't included in the release. Do you have an opinion on if that is positive for solving specifically the Latino home market challenge or or is that good on in theory, but not actually going to make a huge impact?
3: Yeah, I know. I I think you raise a really valid question. And the truth is that I, I don't know. I would say that the Big picture I think what they did, what FHFA did was great. I think it was long overdue in terms of this is an example of modernizing, you know, our approach. I mean, I can think of no better indicator whether someone will pay their mortgage or not is whether they've been paying their rent the past <laughs> two years or whatever. That to me just <laughs> almost seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. You know, so certainly that's going to, you know, help expand. I think back to like someone like my grandfather who I exactly. talked about earlier, he would have been able to point to, you know, decades of paying rent, you know, even though he didn't have a strong credit history, but the impact, that's something that's, you know, it's hard to predict because I've been in this game long enough to know that you, know, you can have the best intention policies and everything's in place. And then either it's kind of like water, it always finds a way to get in. So how something ultimately ends up resulting in the impact. It's hard to measure. I'm I'm optimistic that there could be something where the policy's right, but something's missing in kind of the pipes and how it kind of happens. So that's, that's, you know,
0: we'll see. Yeah. And it also seems like there's, there's still an education and awareness component required to that too. Like we've Mm -hmm. been inundated that to build credit, you have to take credit card, you have to Mm -hmm. take on debt, et cetera. And I think it's going to take a while before you start to, the the general community, like we know this because we're in the mortgage industry that there's new valuations and obviously current applicants who would typically get denied would you know now be open to home ownership, but it's not actually opening the floodgates, it seems like of, hey, maybe I thought I wasn't credit worthy, but now I maybe am because there's actually a new credit score that is taken into consideration that i better fit for more. And so again, it gets to that awareness component exactly. and, and who's telling See, it's, all, it's, message. All yeah. it's all yeah. connected. It's all connected.
1: Well, and even, you know, down payment is another yeah. big one. Like I, I have friends and their first time home buyers, when mm-hmm. they went to their loan officer, the loan officer immediately said, do you have 20% down? They said, no. They said, I don't have time for you. That's a bad loan officer, but it's also, you know, these folks- have been fired. <laughs> well, Seriously. Yeah. And so- there's 3% down programs. Like a lot of what Fannie Mae has tried to do with the home ready was spread that education through folks to, you know, really say, Hey, 3% is good. It's you Mm -hmm. can do this. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, the education piece is is so paramount. I think also with, with those, like you said, long overdue changes or improvements to these, the credit aspects. Part of me thinks that that's a, a call to action to the private sector or maybe to the end of the conservatorship to say, Hey, why did it take so long to get rental income as part of this thing? Like, why is it because of there's a four-year cycle? And I, I don't know, again, enough about that world, but does that promote more private entries into the space to say, hey, we need to modernize credit based on the realities of how people are driving income?
3: Yeah, it's complicated. And, you know, I, I think there are multiple reasons I'm sure why, why it took so long. Y- you can't help that, you know, at least one of them is a matter of differences or competing priorities because in the day you can, you know, kind of focus on just so many things. But I think it does point to the unique place that the mortgage market sits in where it's it's a market, it's profit-based, it has these incentives but at the same time, it's highly regulated, and it has to work within kind of these sets of guideposts, you know. And so, it's complex in terms of like moving things forward. And, in I mean, the conservatorship is is such a unique situation. But of course, it's been our reality now for what I think it's been over it's been ten years. And so, yes, it's it's where we are. But it does it does make for challenging steps forward?
0: One of the questions I had, you know, you mentioned the clear impact in in terms of wealth but setting up the next generation in home ownership in, in the white community is much higher kind of past home ownership and the ability to pass that home down to the next generation or or uh, help with down payment or whatever it is it obviously trickles down to impact their ability to own a home is there for those Latinos and in, in past generations who were homeowners is there similar behavior there or are there other like are they, are they doing similar to how the white community has done in passing down home ownership or their challenges inside of that today
3: yeah no there's actually a, a really big gap here because it, it points to there's this um set of issues kind of separate from the closing process mm-hmm. which is more around estate planning and kind of setting up you know proper you know how how a house is passed on and so we have certainly seen particularly in states like you know, Texas and New Mexico, where there are many Latino families who have had generational home ownership, where over the generations, over the years, the title issues have just increased and there isn't clear title. And like, so a classic example is, you know, grandparents own a house and they pass away and then a grandchild or grandson moves in and it's all in the family and everyone's kind of fine with that. And maybe in some situations there's still a mortgage and the family just keeps paying it. Or in other situations, maybe it's already paid off and they just never you know, because you need, you often need an attorney. You need to know what the process is. All of that stuff takes knowledge, money, and time. And, you know, sadly, it's it's often not until there's a really big problem where this gets discovered. It's an issue where they're just say they have a mortgage and they want a loan modification because there's a financial hardship. They're not eligible because they're not the clear owner. Mm. Or maybe they own the house free and clear and it's an older house and they think they're eligible for some Home renovation rehab from a city program and they apply and they're not eligible because there's not clear title. Or of course, you know, in a lot of communities, like I know this is true in San Antonio and parts of Austin where there's been heavy gentrification. You have these pressures of investors coming in and making cash offers. And if you have a family that's having these challenges, either keeping up with taxes or cleaning up a title issue, it may seem like the easiest thing is just to sell for the profit. And then that house is lost, you know, as Mm -hmm. generational homeownership. Um, So there there are multiple challenges in there. And I think it's one that we've been hearing more and more about from our affiliates and local markets.
0: Yeah. So Laura, I think, I think this was an amazing conversation. You know, I think what we, what we learned during this time is there's kind of really four, maybe big opportunities in really changing this. The most important, I think you laid out with was kind of the affordable housing side we also have this kind of readiness and education component that we talked about, and then credit avail- availability, credit review, and kind of access to credit, um, and then finally the generational home ownership—how you make a higher likelihood of passing that home down—and in and awareness there. Interested in kind of how, you know, I touched I think we touched on it kind of throughout the conversation, but just in summary, how listeners, uh, if they want to start making an impact in some of these areas, how they can get involved, what they should be looking out for and uh, in next steps there.
3: Yeah, great. Thank you. So I think, you know, a really great starting point, especially those out there who are are in in the industry, you know, loan officers or or others, um, is, is connecting with the Housing Counseling Network. I think... There's sometimes a misunderstanding or a disconnect about kind of what the purpose is, or there's a perception that, you know, you might lose your lead or there might be some kind of delay. But housing counselors are a really great resource. They're an unbiased source of information for the consumer, of course. But when you have someone who walks in your door who isn't quite ready Rather than just sending them away or spending a lot of hours, you know or weeks or months helping them get ready, that's what the housing counselors are there for. And if they're head certified, it's going to be a free service, and they can help you know walk the consumer through whatever they need to do whether it's fixing up some credit issues, saving a little more money for down payment, connecting them to down payment assistance programs, whatever it may be. So I think finding better linkages between the industry and and housing counselors is is a really great way to better serve the consumer and it kind of lets everyone kind of do what they do best and focus on, on where their value add is.
0: It's great. Really, really enjoyed uh, you joining us. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on Clear to Close. I think super insightful, obviously a lot of work to be done, but I think, you know, what I think you laid out really well is focusing on those four elements of what we need to change. It, It does definitely does take different actions and different kind of focus area in each of those, to solve each of those issues. But if we make progress in all of them, it seems like there's, there's a, a better light at the end of the tunnel than the world we've been in. And I think from a mortgage perspective, this is a huge opportunity. This is, what is it, 8.3 million uh, Latino Big home number. buyers ready, ready to come in. You know, we talk about, we're in a time of low loan volume. Mm-hmm. Like this is a huge part of the yeah. market that we we can, and we we should be better serving um, than what we've done today.
3: Yeah. No, th- thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It was really great to be part of, um, what is it? Oh, sorry. The <laughs> to Close podcast, are
2: we? we don't know what it's called either. Don't <laughs> worry about
3: it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's really good to be part of, of um, this conversation with you all. And, you know, I think it's really important just to remember that, you know, if you just look at, the the math and, and the demographics. I mean, certainly growing and expanding Latino homeownership is important for the Latino community, but it's important for our country. Yeah. I mean, we're going to be more and more the, the core part of our of our nation's housing market, which we know yep. has a huge influence on our economy. Mm. And so I think it behooves all of us to, to really, you know, do what we need to do to
2: serve this market better. I'm hopeful we have you on in 12 months and we can say there was some progress.
1: <laughs> mm. I would love to come
2: back. Thank That'd you. That'd be awesome.
1: <laughs> Thank so, you so much, Lori. Uh, Thank you.
0: All right. That's it. Another episode of Clear to Close is in the books. Uh, I want to give thanks to Laura for joining us today. I thought a super insightful conversation. Hopefully the listeners uh, enjoyed that. And I think what in, in reflecting on the conversation, what was done really well is in an incredibly complex and multifaceted problem and opportunity in the market is... Really, kind of simplifying it into pillars of of what to focus on, and how if we focus on each one of those things, change can happen and can really shift how home ownership uh, looks going
2: forward for the Latino market. So, AI Brian, anything to add before we before we break? You know, it's interesting. She a lot of really good information and facts and figures that she that Laura shared and. You know, as our, our beloved CFO here at Maxwell always says, we got a lot of wood to chop. So let's go. Let's go, yeah, Jeff. For, some
1: for yeah. me, I think, you know, there, it's tip of the iceberg. Like, there's so much to do ahead of us and learning about more of, of D.C. and how that whole community interacts with our individual communities across the country. And I, I'm eager to, to continue to lean in and learn more about this stuff and, and really try to help out because there's a lot to be done a lot a lot ahead of us a lot of wood to chop and yeah i'm, I'm eager to to dive in and see hey, what I, we can do i agree it'd be cool to kind of check in with her from time to time
2: you know even we just throw her on here for five or ten minutes and just say hey let you know what's progress look like
0: mm-hmm. yeah for sure absolutely yeah it'd be kind of cool and i think what's key in a lot of these uh, challenges i think that that we have is information and context is key And i think doing the research understanding why the situation we're in is the way it is and in understanding the factors at play to make it better is key and i think for this as well as anything you handle in life Making sure you do the research and and find the information and context you need in order to make intelligent decisions and, and actions um, going forward is always always key. So, on that note, uh, if you're new to Clear to Close, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you're a return listener, we hope you enjoyed as well. Again, don't hesitate to uh, we'd love for you to shoot us a review. Let us know what you thought. Before we sign off, one more shout out to our beloved employer and sponsor that makes all this possible, Maxwell. To learn more about Maxwell, visit us at www.highmaxwell.com or email us at meetmax at Until the next episode, happy lending, everybody.
2: Catch you later.